0: if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 is where we'll be today. We finished up chapter 8 last Sunday. And in doing so, we finished sort of that, you know, short two-week sub-series related to matters of the heart. And in those two weeks, we we started out by seeing the heart of of a soul winner uh, by looking at Philip... And then the, we followed that up by looking at the heart of a seeker, uh, by looking at the Ethiopian eunuch. So we examined that interaction between Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch and looked at it from both perspectives. And we talked about how that was such a contrast to the interaction earlier in the chapter between Peter and Simon the sorcerer. And it's because Simon's heart was not right in the sight of the Lord. Acts 8.21 tells, tells us that. But the Ethiopian, heart, Ethiopian eunuch's heart was right. And, and so because of that, the Lord was really able to use that situation in, in his life and because his heart was right before him. But today, as we move into chapter 9, we're going to see another very powerful interaction. So we're kind of in this series of, of interactions. We had you know, Peter and Simon the sorcerer. We had Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And today, the interaction is between the Lord Jesus Christ himself and Saul of Tarsus, who will later become Paul the apostle. Now, we've already been introduced to Saul of Tarsus in this study. He first appeared in Acts chapter 7 at the stoning of Stephen. So Acts seven fifty-eight, speaking of Stephen, says, And cast him, Stephen, out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And that tells us, you know, Saul had some position of leadership there as they were laying his clothes down at Saul's feet. And that was the first mention of Saul in this book and, and in the Bible. Then just a couple of verses later, at the very beginning of Acts chapter 8, we see how he was leading the great persecution, this intense persecution against the followers of Jesus. Um, there, After the stoning of Stephen, it had you know, it, it increased and ramped up all the way through those early chapters in the book of Acts, and then it ends with this, the stoning of Stephen, and then it's just a full-out attack against the believers. And Acts 8.1 says, And Saul was consenting unto his death, obviously referring to the death of Stephen. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And that persecution was led by Saul. Verse 3 of Acts chapter 8 says that, that he made great havoc of the church. So Saul was an issue. He was an issue for the early church there. But today, we are, we're going to see something amazing happen. As Saul's life is transformed. Because Acts chapter 9 is his conversion story. And we're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ himself confront Saul on the road to Damascus. And and his life was never the same. And Saul's conversion is just further evidence and, and part of the process of transition that we've been talking about. This is a transition book. We're kind of in the transition phase of the transition book, God is transitioning away from Israel and towards the body of Christ, and Saul, as the Apostle Paul, will become the key individual that God uses in that transition. So other than the specific events of Christ's life, and certainly his death, burial, and resurrection, what we are going to study today with Saul's conversion maybe is the greatest day in church history. Is there something really important about what we're going to look at today? And Saul, or, or Paul, was certainly a very unique individual that God used mightily, right, to take the gospel of grace to the Gentile. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. He, not only that, he authored, you know, at least 13 of the 27 New Testament books. 14, if you, if you believe, he's the author of Hebrews. Um, and so, you know, 13, 14 of, of 27 books. Fairly, fairly significant uh, person there. But this morning... We're going to focus on his conversion. And in that story, we're going to see the keys to how Saul was transformed. And these keys that we're going to look at this morning absolutely relate to us as well if we want to experience and live a transformed life. So that's the title for today's sermon, very simple, Keys to Transformation. And now again, you, know, you need to understand up front, and I've already noted this, but I want to be very clear about it. Saul of Tarsus was a very unique individual. And God's overall plan and history. And that uniqueness is consistent to his conversion as well. It was a very unique conversion experience that none of us ever have or ever will experience. Again, this was a transition time and, and God worked differently than he does today. But the principles of transformation are the same. The principles are absolutely the same. They're just Bible. They're just biblical principles that we're going to look at today. And there are some steps that we're going to see that Saul walked through in order for the word, the physical word, to transform him. And these are the same steps that we need to walk through for the word of God to transform us and to transform our lives. And if we want genuine transformation in our lives, we, we have to. We must walk through these steps. And, and listen, complete transformation of our life, it, It should always be the goal. That's God's goal for every believer, is conformity to him, transformation. The point you get saved, you become a new creature in Christ. So why would you want to stay the same as you were before? And not only that, most of you probably know this, transformation is a command. In Scripture, we are to be transformed, Romans 12 2, right? Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. By the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove was that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, and that's not presented as optional. We're not to be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. So I think it's important for us to learn about true biblical transformation this morning and what those keys are, what steps we need to walk through in order for it to occur. So let's get into it and see exactly what happened to Saul on the road to Damascus that day. It, It really is just an amazing, amazing. True story. These, you know, this Acts is a history book, right? It's a history of, of the early church there. And these stories that we read, and when I, when I say stories, they're completely true stories, are just amazing. It's just one after another. And, and this is another just amazing story we're going to look at this morning. And we're just going to look at the first part of it. So follow along with me as I read Acts chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 9. So, Acts 9.1, the Bible says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. So this is an amazing, amazing story that we're going to look at this morning and, and pull out some keys for our life, both for, you know, how to, how to get saved, but then how, how to live saved and how to live a transformed life. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to, to, to lead us in that this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this uh, passage of scripture that we're, that we're going to study this morning, and I pray that you use it in our lives, allow us to examine ourselves and see where we're at and And see if we are being transformed by your word. We're allowing your word to renew our mind to to be transformed more and more into your image. And and less and less away from from that uh, lost state of man. And and, and just drawing closer to you in that process. And so Lord, I pray that, that you speak to each and every one of us this morning. We all need to hear from you. And so Lord, I pray that in that vein, everything that is said is true to your word. And I pray that you're glorified through it. And we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, like I said earlier, I'm you know, pretty confident that, that, that none of us in this room have had an experience with the Lord quite like Saul's. And I know that you know, some of your testimonies are different than mine, um, but this one is certainly one of a kind. But what shouldn't be different for any of us, and what is certainly possible for all of us, is a transformed life before the Lord. You see, that is God's desire, absolutely God's desire for each and every one of us in here this morning. A life that is different, a life that is better. According to John 10 and verse 10, a life that is abundant. Jesus said that the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. So, I want you to know this morning, before we even get started on these keys to transformation, that the abundant life in Christ is absolutely possible. A transformed life to God's glory is absolutely possible, but it's not automatic. It doesn't happen automatically. You have free will and you get to choose. But there are some keys that we see in Paul's transformation story that we need to see in our own, and and here is where it starts. For us to ever see true biblical transformation, we need to, first of all, acknowledge our enmity. We need to acknowledge our enmity. You see, at our core, in our natural state, we are the enemies of God. Now, was certainly true of Saul, maybe like no other person that had lived, at least up to that point. Look at verses 1 through 4 again. As Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, unto him Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And so we mentioned earlier how Saul was leading the charge of persecution against the early church. And here in verse 1, we can see the depths of his enmity against the church and against the work of the Lord. The Bible says he was breathing out threatenings and slaughter. It means it was his life source. That was what was driving him in life. David had a similar experience with his enemies. He explained it in Psalm 27, 12 like this. He said, deliver me not over under the will of mine enemies, for false witnesses are risen up against me and such as breathe out cruelty. It is in their breath. It is in their speech. It is all-consuming. And for Saul, it was all-consuming to the point of murder. That's what the word slaughter means. And we already know that Saul was consenting under the murder of Stephen. Later, when Saul was recounting his testimony in Acts 22, he said this in verse 4, And I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. Later, when he was giving his testimony again in Acts 26 and verse 10 to King Agrippa, he said, Which thing I also did in Jerusalem and Many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And then he was telling the Galatians about his state and the depths of his enmity with God. He said this in Galatians 1.13, For ye have heard of my conversation or my lifestyle in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. So, you can see the strong language that Paul uses over and over again. He says it was slaughter and death and wasted. That was his position against the church. And he was chasing them down. He wasn't satisfied with just locking down Jerusalem. Damascus was about 160 miles from Jerusalem. So, he got permission or letters from the high priest to go to Damascus to find the followers of Jesus and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial and prison and or death. But here's what Saul didn't understand when he was doing all this. This is what he didn't understand at the time. His position against the church, persecuting the church, wasn't even really against the church. I mean, it certainly was in one sense, but it goes way deeper than that. It was against the Lord. Who he thought he was serving. And I say that because did you notice what the Lord asked Saul in in, Acts 9-4? He said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And in that moment, Saul was brought face to face with the fact that he was an enemy of God. Not just the church. Not just the followers of Jesus. He was an enemy of God. And this statement by the Lord gives us some great doctrinal insight into the transitioning aspect of the body of Christ. We are, how we are one with Christ in the body, with him as our head. So when we are persecuted, that means Christ is persecuted. We can't be separated from him. Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 12, there are many other cross-references I could give you. But the point is, the Lord confronted Saul with his personal enmity in a way that he wasn't even aware of. And what is always the case is that our enmity and our sin are always against the Lord. They're against the Lord. David acknowledged this when he was dealing with his sin with Bathsheba and the subsequent sin of having her husband Uriah murdered. But listen to David's confession and his understanding in Psalm 51 verses 3 and 4. He says, "For I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. But look at verse, listen to verse four. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. You see, there's no such thing as a victimless sin. It's just that we're not actually the victims. We think we are, and it certainly feels that way, but, it's, but that sin, sin is always against the Lord. He is the perfect one. He is the holy one. And holiness offends, or, or sin offends righteousness. Sin offends holiness. The only righteousness we have is in Christ. So there's no such thing as a victim of sin. It's just that we're not the victims. And before Saul could move on to the next step and even begin the process of transformation, he had to acknowledge who he was and how he was wrong. And how his actions had made him an enemy of God. And listen, that is true of every individual. It's true of all of us as well. Before we can ever live and experience a transformed life to God's glory, we have to acknowledge who we are as well. And that in our natural and unregenerated state, we too are an enemy of God. And I know that Saul came to understand that fact because when he was Paul writing all those New Testament books, he wrote about it multiple times. In Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, he said, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him, for if... When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 21, he says, And you who were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. So you see, before we are saved, we are an enemy of God, plain and simple. And it doesn't matter how good you think you might be and how good you think you are as a person. You're of your father the devil and the lust of your fathers ye will do. And listen, this sometimes this is hard for us to wrap our heads around. Because we know people who aren't saved, but are good, see at least seemingly good moral people. And listen, compared to others, they might be. That that might absolutely be true. But compared to Christ, they are the enemy. And that is just a biblical fact. But here's the even scarier thing, I think. Because even for those of us who are saved, while we are still absolutely one with Christ, we can still live practically as his enemy. And, and doctrinally, we're not. Doctrinally, we are in Christ. And when God looks at us in and, and the standing before him, he sees us as holy. But our state can live practically in a position that is in opposition to God and the ways of God. And that all depends on our state of mind and where we allow our mind to go and how we control our mind and how we renew our mind. Is your mind renewed daily in the new man of Christ or is your mind still being controlled by that old man and that old sin nature? Romans 8, verses 6 through 8 lay this out for us. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind, is enmity against God. For it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. And unfortunately, it is possible for a saved person to be carnally minded. To be carnally minded in that we're just not renewing our mind and we're just allowing that old man to lead our actions and to lead our thoughts. And the carnal mind is enmity against God. James 4.4 tells us that friendship with the world, is enmity with God. So even for the believer, there's a danger there for us. Even after we become Christians, it it certainly changes our doctrinal standing before the Lord, but there's still a practical element of how we live our life. So we have to be careful with this and be very careful and intentional about keeping a sober mind. Because if we don't, we are at risk for landing on the wrong side of things and being an enemy of God, maybe without even knowing it. Saul didn't know he was God's enemy. Now, he wasn't saved at the time, but he was religious as can be. He was sincere in his desire to serve God. He talks about it in multiple places and how zealous he was. So listen, and I put this on your outline sheet. You need to understand that you can be an enemy of God and not be aware of it. You can be an enemy of God and not be aware of it. Because if you don't keep a sober mind, you are at risk for being deceived by your deceitful heart. We've talked about that the past two weeks. And you might even be like Saul and be sincere. But don't confuse sincerity with being right. Sincerity isn't the issue. Saul was 100% sincere. He was just sincerely wrong. In fact, in 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 and 13, he explained how sincerely wrong he was. He said, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly, in unbelief. He admitted he didn't know. He did it ignorantly. But here's the key. When he was confronted with the truth, he acknowledged it. He didn't lie to himself and convince himself that he was okay. And that this actually was the way, the thing that God wanted him to do. God really wanted him to keep persecuting the church. And listen, that's not easy. It's not easy to admit that you're an enemy of God. But until you do, you will live in the state that you currently find yourself. And you will not see transformation. You will not see yourself being used by God in any significant way. That won't happen. That brings us to our second key to transformation because the way you acknowledge your practical enmity with God is to accept his examination. Accept his examination. You see, the easy path is to dismiss the fact that you might be an enemy of God and not listen to that still, small voice of the Lord. Not that it was still and small for Saul that day. It certainly wasn't. But for us, it usually is. Because down deep, we usually know what's right, and we know that we're not right. But we don't want to admit it, and we don't want to address what that might mean for us. But if you desire transformation, you have to let the Lord examine you. And then through that process, examine yourself, because that's what we see happen with Saul. Look at verses four through seven again. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. He didn't have to, you know, there were a lot of Jesuses at that time. He didn't have to give any further explanation of, you know, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, I'm the one that died on the cross. Saul knew exactly who he was talking to in that moment. He said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the first thing that I want you to notice is that the Lord begins this examination of Saul because he loves him. And I'll explain that to you. But in spite of Saul's enmity, in spite of Saul's persecutions and murders of God's people, God still loved him and still wanted the best for him and still wanted to use him. And isn't that an encouraging note? Nah, man, that's an encouraging note to me. And I want all to know, I want all of you in here to know this morning that God feels the same way about you and me. And that it doesn't matter how far we've fallen. It doesn't matter how much of an enemy to the Lord we have made ourselves. That God still loves us and God still wants the best for us. So you might be in here this morning because this is your last hope. And you don't even know where to go from here because of the shame that you're holding on to because of what you've done or how you've been living your life. If that's you, let me just take a moment. I just want to clear off a space here and say that you're in good company with Saul this morning. And even after Saul, you know, became Paul. And maybe the greatest Christian that ever walked the face of the earth. He never got over what he did and and how he was before. He talks about it over and over and over in his epistles. Listen to just one example how he described himself. Near the end of his ministry, by the way, in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am chief. And I want you to notice that he didn't say that he was the chief sinner back when he was a a persecutor and a blasphemer. No, he said, Of whom I am chief. That's how he always saw himself. And I point that out because that means if Saul's life can be transformed, yours can too. Mine can too. You are never too far gone. God loves you and wants you to come to him just like he did Saul. So there is a way out. But you don't get to choose that path. That's the thing. You have to do it God's way. And it probably won't be easy. Because God loves you enough to examine you. And call you, to out, call you out on where you are wrong. And if you sincerely want to come to him, he won't let you stay in your sin but don't you want out of it anyway? I mean, that was really what the Lord was saying to Saul when he said, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks, right? It's an interesting phrase and it's just a picture, it's a a stick, you know, with with pricks or sharp points on the end that farmers would use with oxen and and sometimes the oxen wouldn't want to work, so right, they'd come and and they'd prick them and that, you know, they'd goad them and they'd, they'd stick them. And Obviously, the oxen wouldn't like that. And, and so sometimes they'd kick against it. They'd kick against those pricks. And, and that wouldn't work for them. That would just hurt them further. And that's exactly what was happening with Saul. His conscience had been pricking him, I, be, I believe, ever since the stoning of Stephen. And we've talked about that some. We don't have time to talk about it now. But he just kept fighting. And he just kept working against the Lord so hard that he was hurting himself. And the Lord said, don't you want to stop this? Don't you just want to put an end to this? Don't you want to quit fighting? Don't you want to just surrender once and for all? Isn't this making your life more difficult? It's hard. It's a hard thing to kick against the pricks. And listen, I know that in a crowd this big, the Lord's asking you, some of you, that exact same question right now. Is it the life you're living? Isn't it just making things way more difficult? Wouldn't it just be easier to finally surrender to the Lord and to His will for your life? Not only would it be that easier, ultimately, maybe not in the short term, but certainly in the long term, it's way better. It's a way better life. And so he's asking you that question because he loves you enough to confront you. So don't resist it. Accept it and embrace it and own it because it comes from a place of love. And I know that it comes from a place of love but by the way he addressed Saul. When he confronts Saul in verse 4, the Lord said, Saul, Saul. He called him by his name twice. And there's consistency in scripture so when Christ does that, it's because of a, it's a heartfelt appeal. It's because of a love for that person or entity. We see it with Martha. When she was cumbered about with much serving, the Bible says. She was trying to serve the Lord, but she was missing intimacy with him because of how she was going about doing it. And the Lord didn't want her to miss him in the midst of her busyness. And in Luke ten forty one, we read, And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. It was out of his care for her. Another time, in lament, Jesus called out to Jerusalem in the same way because of his care and love for that city. Luke 13, 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killeth the prophets and stonest them that are sinned unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen to gather her brood under her wings? And ye would not. You can hear it in his voice. His love, I, I wanted to bring you guys in, and I wanted to care. I was, I, was the, I was your shepherd, and you just wouldn't accept it. He was heartbroken for them. And we see that heartfelt appeal, appeal in the double name. And this is a pattern. It's a pattern that goes all the way back to the beginning of Scripture, back to Genesis 22 and and. And we don't have time, but there's so many pictures in that. And Abraham was getting ready to sacrifice Isaac. And the Lord, as the angel of the Lord, cries out to him in care for both Abraham and Isaac. And listen to what he says, Genesis 22:12. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. Yeah, he was, he was listening because he didn't want to go through with what he was getting ready to do. You see, this is the approach the Lord takes when in his love and care, he is trying to get someone's attention. And that's exactly what he was trying to do with Saul. So he confronts him. And he begins his examination by asking Saul a question. Why persecutest thou me? And he was trying to get Saul to look at him, to to, to look at the Lord, to look at Jesus. And allow Jesus to show him what was going on inside of him. And what it was that he was actually doing, which was persecuting him, sinning against him. And that's what happened. Saul accepted an examination and he began to look internally. And this must happen. If you're, if you're going to walk through this process of transformation, you must be willing to be honest with the Lord in order to find out what is really going on inside of you. And again, this isn't easy, but you can't skip it. David knew it. It's why he asked the Lord to examine him in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And there's a scary honesty in that request from David, asking God to search him and to examine him. Because, but it was, it was because he wanted to know. He wanted to know if there was any wicked way in him. He wanted to be led by the Lord. So what a great request it was. But here's what is scary. When you find out what's going on inside of you, well, you got to do something with it. And that's what Saul was facing. And he responded correctly. Because when he found out what was going on inside of him and how he was actually an enemy of God, it led him to ask two questions in return. So Jesus, the Lord, asked him a question. Why persecutest thou me? And he asked two questions in return, which I believe to be the two most important questions in life. And the questions, everybody, we all need to ask ourselves at some point in life and even multiple times in life. And the first question was, who art thou, Lord? Who art thou, Lord? Because first of all, we must know who Jesus is. We must know who Jesus is, not only abstractly, but personally and who he is is the son of god the alpha and omega the savior the good shepherd the king of kings the lord of lords the head of the church the true vine the light of the world the prince of peace the word and the list goes on and on and on and on that is who he is but but the question really that, would, that I'd put on the table is this is he those things to you? Is he your savior? Do you know him personally? Is he he your Lord? Is he your king? Is he those things to you? Because if he is, then you'll ask the second question, which is, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And this is important because listen, I, I put this on your outline sheet. Consecration isn't just verbal, it's actual. It isn't just verbal, it's actual. He said, what wilt thou have me to do? Well, it's not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And that's the most important question any believer can ask of the Lord. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, and if he is the Son of God, and if he is our Savior, And if he is the king of kings and the Lord of Lord, if he is all that, then what else can we do but serve him? What other option are you left with? So we need to find out then what he wants us to do. He wants what he wants from our life. Truly, what else can we do with that information? Why do you want to waste your life by not doing what he desires of you? And the question here is a very personal one. It was not, what is your plan for the world? Or, or, or what do you want the church to do? It was, what wilt thou have me to do? Which is all that matters. And this is a problem for many of us, for many believers, because it's so much easier to see some, someone, what someone else is doing or not doing than to see what we are doing or not doing. So here is the real issue. What is it that God wants me to do? That's the issue, and I put that on your outline sheet. What is it that God wants me to do? Why don't you figure that out and then be obedient to that and quit worrying about what everyone else is doing or not doing or or doing right or doing wrong? And and, and there's just so many beautiful pictures in the Bible of this. It reminds me of the time Jesus confronted and examined Peter. Right, This is after Peter had denied Jesus, so after Jesus' resurrection but before his ascension. And he met with Peter personally and he asked him, this is in John 21, he asked him those three times, lovest thou me more than these? Lovest thou thee more than these? Lovest thou me more than these? It was a very personal conversation. And it was something that the Lord needed to nail down with Peter because, because he was about to inform him that, that Peter was going to die for him. He, he, he tells him that in this conversation. And as, sooner, as soon as Peter finds that out, that, that, that he's going to die to serve Christ, he wanted to know what Jesus was going to ask of John. So I want you to see Jesus' response in that interaction. It's John 21. Look at verses 19 through 22. This spake he, this spake Jesus, signifying by what death he, or Peter, should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said unto him, follow me. I mean, like, I mean, we want to get into, like, you know, what it means to follow Jesus. He's like, okay, Peter, here's the thing. You love, you love me at more than all, all these you love me more than anything. I need you to feed my sheep. I need you to feed my lambs. And he said, okay, when you do that, you're, you're going to die. Like, you're, you're going you're gonna to be a martyr. Now, let's go. Now, follow me. Like, he didn't, he didn't even say, you willing? You going to do that? He's like, all right, well, there you go. There's the information. Let's get to work. Follow me. Then look at verse 20, and I love it. I love the honesty because this is me. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following, that's John, which also leaned on his breast to supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter seeing him saith to Jesus, Lord, what shall this man do? So if I'm going to die, um, what about John? I was just wondering what your plans are for John. Curious what he's going to do if, you know, are they the same? Got different plans for him? I don't know. I'm just curious. Listen, that's absolutely me. I like love Peter. But look at verse 22. Jesus saith unto him, if I will, that he tarry or live till I come? What is that to thee? Follow thou me. What's that to you? Who cares? It does not matter, my plans for John. One thing matters, my plans for you. That's the crux of the matter. What is that to thee? Follow thou me. And it's always about you and him. It is always about me and him. And we get tripped up when we get too worried about what is between the Lord and someone else. Well, what about them? What is that to thee? Just do what you're supposed to do. Do what the Lord told you to do. Because let me tell you, if you think you've got things figured out better than the next person, then you're walking on thin ice. And you're putting yourself in a dangerous position because pride is present. So don't do that. Let the Lord examine you and then examine yourself. Because I promise you this, you have something to work on. I know I do for sure. And that is a key to transformation, finding out what is going on inside of you, that's making you possibly an enemy of God even without knowing it, and then asking the Lord what you need to do about it. What do you want me to do? And this entire section of Scripture is just so interesting for many reasons. We're glossing over a lot of it. But one of them is, is this question from Saul. There are three key questions you find in the book of Acts that covers the three different people groups that you see in the Bible. So the first one was in Acts chapter two, right, for, for the unsaved Jewish people. After hearing Peter preach at Pentecost, the question was, what shall we do? And, and Peter's answer was repent and be baptized. It was a kingdom gospel that they were preaching. And So you have the answer to the Jews at that time. Acts 16, you have the Philippian jailer with Paul and Silas. And his question was, sirs, what must I do to be saved? This was an unsaved Gentile. And what was their answer? The answer was believe. This was the gospel of grace. We had seen the transition. And then here in Acts chapter 9, Saul, it's, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? This is, this is a man that was just saved. And the answer was arise and go. It's the it's Great Commission there in, in, in that context. But it's the three people groups. It's, it's the Jews, it's the Gentiles, it's the church. And it's the three most important questions for each one. But that's just something a little extra. It's very interesting. So Saul asked the Lord what's he, what he wants him to do. And the Lord tells him to arise and to go. To same it's the same thing he told Philip, by the way, arise and go. Tells him to arise and go into Damascus. And, that, and that's it, though. He says the rest is going to come later. And that's a good lesson because that's how the Lord usually works with us. He usually gives us one step at a time. But what we see in verse 8 is that Saul couldn't do that on his own because all of a sudden now he's blind. So he needed help from someone else. He needed to see through someone else's eyes. And that brings us to the final step, the final key to transformation, and that is to adopt his existence. So we have to acknowledge our, our enmity, to acknowledge our enmity with him. And then we need to accept an examination, allow the Lord to examine us, and, and, and then examine ourselves. And then what, has to, what should come out of that, after we ask the Lord what it is that you want us to do, is to adopt his existence, adopt the life of Christ. Because for ultimate transformation to occur, there, there must be an exchange of life. This is certainly for an unsaved person to accept the, the, the sacrifice of Christ. But then even for a saved person, again, we have this standing versus state that we're, you know, we're continuing to work through. So in our state, we have to adopt his existence to live the life of Christ and die to ourself and live his life. But look at verses eight. And I want, I want you to see how this plays out. Verses eight and nine. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. So Saul had to be led by the hand because the vision of God's glory had left him blind, and we didn't have time to even talk about all of that. The great thing is, is this story, we we understand the importance of this story because it's recounted three times in in the book of Acts, and what we're going to talk about here with three days, there's... No coincidence to that. So we see the original story here in Acts chapter 9. We see Paul recount it again in Acts chapter 22 and in Acts chapter 26. And we get different details. And so as we move through the book of Acts, we'll, talk, we'll pull out some different things. And we'll talk about the glory that, was, that in Acts chapter 26 talks about was, was at midday and was brighter than the sun. So it's just an amazing story. The glory of God. This was, the, the, this was what he was seeing. And that glory left him blind. His spiritual eyes had been opened, but now his physical eyes were closed. And God was thoroughly humbling Saul, preparing him for the ministry that was ahead. And that was a process that took three days. And you have to see the typology and the picture in that. This is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which is ultimately the exchange of life. It is death for life. This is a picture seen all throughout Scripture, beginning in Genesis chapter 1. The first life we see in the Bible during the creation event was on the third day, not surprisingly. It was the herb-yielding seed, the fruit tree-yielding fruit after its kind. You see it in Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac, on the third day, they went up. You see it with Jonah. Jonah. And the list just goes on and on and on. This is just a consistent pattern in Scripture. Three days, a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection. It's a picture of that exchange of life and where true life occurs. And for us, it's the death of our life in exchange for the life of Christ. And man, what a trade that is. Christ for the criminal. But it must be a willing exchange. You are be willing to die, to mortify your flesh, to die to yourself in order to live the life of Christ. This, too, was something Saul learned very well. Because as Paul, it was a consistent theme in his writings. You know, for example, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 10 and 11 says, Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Right? we got to bear about the dying of Jesus so that his life could come alive in us. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So the only way for Jesus' life to be made manifest, to come alive in us, is if we die to our, our old man. We've we got to share in that. we got to share in the dying to then experience real life. And listen, we, we talk all the time. About, you know, living the life of Jesus and following Jesus and doing what Jesus did. And, you know, I, I know the kids, you won't have any idea what I'm talking about. But back in my day, there were these WWJD bracelets, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. What would Jesus do? And, and the context of all that is fine. It's all good desires. It's what Paul describes in, 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 in 2 Corinthians 4.10 as the life also of Jesus. And we want the life of Jesus. We want to live like Jesus, and that's great. You should want that. But but listen to me very closely, and I I put it on your outline sheet. The only way to get the life of Jesus is to consent to sharing in the dying of Jesus. That's it. You cannot live the life of Jesus if you are going to keep your old man alive. The only way to get the life of Jesus is to consent to sharing in the death of Jesus. Jesus experiencing that spiritual death, burial, and resurrection. So that means we have to take up our cross. That's what those three days of blindness and fasting represented for Saul. It was the death of Saul. It was Saul on the cross so that Christ could come to life three days later. And the cross and our death is a symbol of something very real in our experience. And I I want you to just think about that for a second. What was Jesus like on the cross? He was not powerful. He was not oppressive. He was not significant. He was not being applauded by the multitudes who listened to his every word. No, none of that. The cross was a place of physical weakness, of rejection by the proud and arrogant world around him. It was a place of obscurity, a place where he was willing to lose everything he had built and trust his father to bring it back and make it significant. It was full submission to his father. Not my will, but thine. I lay me down. And that's what the call of death to self looks like, so that you can rise up in the newness of Christ. Are you willing to give up all the things that make you look important to other people, to take the place of obscurity if necessary, trusting God to use it however he will? Because that's necessary for spiritual transformation. And everything we deal with today fights against that. We are being assaulted on every side by the cult of human rights. That I deserve this or I deserve that. I want to be recognized and acknowledged. I want to be known and affirmed. I want to be seen and appreciated. And I get it. I do too. But the truth is the Christian gospel cuts right across all of that. This is the very thing that the cross says has to die. Big bad Saul had to die, and he did. He was going to Damascus looking for believers, but when he got to the city, he could not see. Saul went to Damascus to apprehend followers of Jesus, but according to Philippians 3.12, he was the one apprehended by Christ. He said that in Philippians 3.12, but not as though he had already attained Either we're already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. He literally became a prisoner of Christ because Saul was willing to die to himself to live the life of Christ. That's what these three days picture. He went as the leader, right? He had all these people around him, and he's Big bad Saul going into Damascus as the leader to raid the church. But ultimately, he was the one that had to be led into the city. So he couldn't depend on himself at all. And listen, we must come to the end of dependence on ourselves and rest upon the willingness of God to be at work in us. And that needs to be a true even if no one else acknowledges and affirms it. The other guys with him had no idea what was going on in him. They heard something, but they didn't see what Saul saw. And according to Acts 22:9, they didn't even hear words like Saul heard. Acts 22:9 said, "And they that were with him saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me." So they heard something, but they didn't hear words. They didn't hear what Jesus was saying to him. They didn't see what he saw. So they took him to Damascus and left him alone. And listen, that, this last step of the transformation process, it has to be tackled alone. Just you and the Lord. Because the truth is, when God is at work in your life like that, he is at work to change your whole character until it's like Jesus in the midst of rejection and lack of recognition. Are you willing to do that? If so, you can have the life of Jesus. But this is another place we struggle, isn't it? We want the power of God, but we want to get at least partial credit for it too. And if God does anything through us, we want to be sure someone else notices. And if anything happens in our midst, in our home, or in our family, we want it to be known that, man, we spent a lot of hours praying for that, or that we counseled so-and-so in such a helpful way, and we want to move in and get at least, you know, we want to all glory to God. But, you know, mean, a little bit. Me too. You know. I mean, he did use me. And, and we want the life of Jesus, but we still want the satisfaction of our own flesh. I mean, isn't it amazing how we want to be free from anxiety? This is such an anxiety-filled world today, and it is just ramping up more and more and more. And we want to be free from anxiety to have the confidence about the future. At the same time, we insist on the pleasure of worrying. We enjoy worrying. We feel so much more fulfilled if we've worried a while. At least we've done our part. I've heard people say, if I don't worry, who will? As if someone has to, or nothing will be accomplished. But that's our problem. We want the kingdom of God to reign in our hearts, but we want our own personal rights and feelings as well. Listen, you cannot have both if you want true biblical transformation. And it's hard, it's a process. And we all fail. But but this is the path. So when you fail, you get back up and you get back on it. You can't get away from always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. You can't get away from it. So at some point you must die. And recognize that real life comes through that transformation as you rise up to walk in the newness of his life. Alone, not your own. And that's exactly what we're going to see Saul do next week because he was a transformed man, never to be the same. But it never would have happened if he wouldn't have acknowledged his enmity against God, how he was pulling in a different direction, and if he wouldn't have accepted the Lord's examination that led to him asking the two most important questions of life. And the answer involved him adopting the Lord's existence. He had to be willing to die to himself and rise up in the newness of the life of Christ three days later. So the only question left this morning is, are you willing to do those things? Do you desire a transformed life to the glory of God? Because there's only one path to get there. But listen, it sure is worth it. So let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. And as we're preparing to, 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 to close out this service, the singing, uh, the final song of worship, I just, I just want you to allow the Lord to examine you this morning. And then examine yourself. Ask yourself those honest, hard questions. Lord, what will I have me to do? What is it that you need to be doing now? And then commit to doing that. Commit to taking the next step. And whatever it may be. It's like we talked about last week. Maybe, maybe it's going to the new members luncheon next Sunday. That again, even though it says canceled on your bulletin, it's not. Show up next Sunday if you signed up for it. and Even if you haven't signed up, show up for it. Maybe it's signing up for the Cost of Discipleship class on December 3rd. Maybe it's so you need to get saved. Maybe you need to get saved this morning. Maybe you have never had a time in your life where you place your faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross and have believed in his death, burial, and resurrection to get you to heaven. Maybe that's what he wants you to do this morning. And if that's the case, why don't you do that? Why not you come forward and talk to one of us during this song or catch us afterwards, whatever the case might be, to, be to, to, to answer the question of, Lord, what would thou have me to do? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the example of, of Saul and, and how you transform his life through those steps. And Lord, I pray that, that you um, work on each and every one of us. We all have work, certainly, uh, that we need in our life. And so help us to see it according to your word and then be glorified in our life. Lord, I pray if there's anyone that isn't here that, that, that if there's anyone that is here that, that doesn't know you today, that they'd they'd meet you, they'd come to the saving knowledge of you today, and be by your grace will be saved and by placing their faith in you. Lord, we love you, we thank you for all you do. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.